0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press stars and zero on your touchdown telephone. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's conference, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you so much, Glenda, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's cancer care program, Living with Chronic Myelogenous Leukemia, or CML. Today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations, and um, it's really a, a pleasure to have all of you on the call today. We have over 422 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, so some urban from rural and suburban areas, and we also have international participants today from Canada, India, Ireland, and the United Kingdom, so really um, a bit of a global call as well. Um, Today's program is supported by Novartis Oncology and Takeda Oncology. I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers, actually the best of the best on the program today. I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow, uh, Dr. is Izita, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member, Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center, professor of medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College. And uh, Dr. Uh, Morrow um, will be addressing an overview of, of chronic myelogenous leukemia. Um, he'll discuss current standard of care and new treatment approaches, adherence for taking your pills on schedule, the role of your health care team in adherence, um, and uh, your quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Michael Morrow. Well
1: thank you, Carolyn, and thank you everybody for joining. Uh nothing I enjoy more to to, to do in addition to my clinical work than to uh to participate in a in a call like this and to help um with uh patients, loved ones of patients, um healthcare professionals or, or um uh, providers. Um, to talk about this diagnosis of CML, which I've had the pleasure of uh, working in for the last 20 years. So I I have a few topics to cover in the next uh, uh, period of time, and I'll start with what is CML and how do we make the diagnosis? So CML, or chronic myeloid leukemia, is uh, one of the myeloproliferative disorders, or myeloproliferative neoplasms. So it's a blood cancer um, that indeed is, just as it sounds, it's a chronic disease of the blood, Um, that is part of a family of multiple diseases. The other diseases in this group are um, the big ones, if you will, are polycythemia, thrombocytosis, or essential thrombocytosis, and myelofibrosis. But TML is quite unique. It's really, uh, to point out a few highlights, um, one of the first human cancers linked to a genetic abnormality, and um, probably the disease that has um, really led the way in the development of targeted therapy in in, uh, cancer Um, with the advent of of drugs that block the driver or the main defect that causes CML, um, which is called the Philadelphia chromosome, um, and that genetic abnormality in blood cells that are precursor cells or early cells, uh, uh, something very close to what we call a stem cell, um, creates something called uh, a bcra fusion or a fusion of two uh, bits of the genome that aren't supposed to be um, together, which activates um cells um, causes them to last too long to not undergo programmed cell death or die and causes a disease. So backing up a little bit how do we make the diagnosis of CML? Most patients with CML are actually diagnosed by because of other health um, intervention, routine blood tests, blood tests done in a non-specific way looking for something or to explain a a, a symptom. Um, so, for example, patients may go in without symptoms and have a blood test, which is surprisingly abnormal. And usually the main finding is an elevated white blood cell count coupled with a, um, uh, perhaps a mild anemia or a change in the red blood count or an elevation or sometimes a reduction in platelets. The white blood cell count is often abnormal looking in that there's uh, cells that are normally in the bone marrow in the circulation called a left shift or um, a, um, an abnormal differential. People may have symptoms related to the diagnosis as well, and this may be the reason for blood testing. Um, Some of the other main manifestations would be an enlarged spleen, sometimes um, uh, what we call constitutional symptoms or generalized symptoms, things like fatigue, um, sometimes some easy bruising, um, or we call B symptoms, sweats, fevers, weight loss. Some people can have quite a heavy burden of symptoms with a a spleen that's quite enlarged, uh, feeling up early when they eat, discomfort in the abdomen, um, and, and, and again, heavy symptoms, or it might, it might have very high white blood cell count. It's important as, as a healthcare community to, to, to try to risk stratify someone's CML as they're diagnosed. It's important to really get a sense of the way the CML presents in the in the office. Of course, a, a, another physician may see these numbers, but a hematologist is best suited to to make the proper diagnosis of CML. Um, and even a CML specialist is, is important to incorporate early on. The things that are done to make the diagnosis are, are more detailed blood tests to understand the types of cells in the circulation and the nature of it, but most importantly to, to look for and identify this genetic marker, the Philadelphia chromosome. That can be done by, by blood testing, looking for uh, evidence of DNA or RNA that would um, w- rather, w- which would, would show, yes, there's this abnormal fusion in the blood, and if so, just how much, quantify it. Um, other tests in the blood that can be done include a, a fluorescent tagging procedure called FISH, which has nothing to do with things that swim in the ocean, but really just um, a fluorescent um, labeling of these two chromosome uh, regions and seeing if they've been juxtaposed or put together. I often describe it as peanut butter, my chocolate, chocolate, my peanut butter, like Reese's Penis is commercial. Um, the Philadelphia translocation is, is m- movement of one bit of genetic material um, to another uh, chromosome, and we have a fusion of material from chromosomes nine and 22. Um, the um, the other th- important thing to say is that a bone marrow test is often important to make the diagnosis or to understand fully the, the nature of CML. And that helps us look at um, the how how um, active the, the condition may be. Are there signs of the CML trying to behave in a more accelerated or ag- advanced phase? CML can be proliferating faster, uh, behaving a bit more badly and called an accelerated phase when it causes a increase in blast cells in the bone marrow when it drives the spleen um, to, to grow um, quite large or the blood shows a profile where there are more immature cells than perhaps just a general smattering that we would see in more typical chronic phase. CML can sometimes present and look like acute leukemia, either AML or ALL. Now it's not that it's two diagnosis, it's really a spectrum um, where the, a blast phase uh, of CML Means the, the CML has has begun to behave much more, more like acute leukemia. That the blast cell count is very high. There are um, essentially mostly these immature cells being made, it, and that that really halts healthy blood production and leads to often very low platelets or lower platelets, um, more significant anemia, and probably more symptoms as well. And it's treated differently. Accelerated phase CML is often treated closer to chronic phase CML, but it, but. Blast phase CML is treated more like acute leukemia, although it often or really should incorporate some of the targeted drugs I'll talk about in a minute. Um, so, moving on to what is the standard uh, care and new treatment approaches, I think um, that goes without saying that we have a long history of developing targeted therapy, small molecule oral medications that um, really have set the stage for how do, you, how do you unravel what a cancer is and how do you treat it. So, Gleevec was the first. Clinical trials began in 1998, FDA approval in 2001. And in 2017, 2018, now we have five FDA approved drugs. Um, the names are amantinib, uh, nalantinib, desantinib, basutinib, and panantinib. Um, they have slightly different indications. Um, there are four drugs that are possible to use at diagnosis. And that list just grew. It used to be three, now it's four. And that, that, so the drugs used in diagnosis are all except for penantinib. So imantinib, nilantinib, desantinib, and basutinib are all proven to be useful and safe to be used in the first diagnosis. Not surprisingly, the, the medications can be used in sequence or um, exchanged. There's um, ways to look at which drug might be preferable for a certain patient that include what what point in treatment someone's at, what kind of side effects someone had from another treatment. If they're newly diagnosed, what's, what medical conditions do people have and what, what drug might be most suitable to um, give the most benefit and avoid um, side effects, um, which is, of course, the right balance we want to strike. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about general principles here. So the next uh, thing to say would be that um, in addition to the, all the proper initial diagnostic testing, the most important thing is that people have regular testing. We've, it's been shown, unfortunately, that um, the treatment response is so high and the success can be so good. And I think Dr. Shah, my, my colleague, can talk more about this as well, that the survival of someone with CML should be um, as if they didn't have CML. They should be able to um, be treated, have a high quality remission, in the majority of cases, But so the typical patient with CML shouldn't um, hopefully have this affect their normal lifespan. They, of course, may need, uh, sometimes treatment is very straightforward. Sometimes it can be a bit complicated. Sometimes it's um, multi, multifaceted. Multi, many different things need to be used to treat the CML effectively. But um, monitoring is key, and that includes um, often at least a one additional time, a second bone marrow test to confirm uh, a good response or remission, although that isn't necessary in every single case. What's most important is regular blood monitoring to assess the level of response by retesting the BC or ABLE level. The most important way to do that is by PCR, or polymerase chain reaction, which is molecular testing, easily obtained from the blood. should be standardized on an international scale and tell someone exactly where am I relative to where I started, where am I relative to where I should be at a certain point in treatment. There are expectations for reductions in the level by 3 months, by 12 months, um, in the, within the first two years of treatment, generally, and then ultimately, if someone can get to a deep remission, um, I'll mention this is probably the most important thing to say about new treatment approaches, which is now in 2017, 2018. After years of study, we now have in our guidelines the, the descriptors and the and the essentially the green light to consider in the right patient or the right circumstances that someone's treatment may have a, a, a stop date on it. That after years of treatment some patients are eligible to think about treatment-free remission. And I want to emphasize this needs to be taken very carefully um, in the hands of CML experts and with very careful monitoring. And it's not for every patient, um, but it is a possibility, so something to discuss. Essentially, when someone has um, a very deep remission for a number of years with careful monitoring, it's possible um, to think about treatment cessation and monitoring with the expectation that approximately half the patients will um, be able to retain remission and not need treatment over the long term. Again, not something to be taken lightly or to be done um, without um, authorization, without the the oversight of hopefully a CML expert um, and, at a minimum, a hematologist. In the last few minutes, let me talk about some important other um, elements. That would be adherence and taking your pills on schedule. So this is a marathon taking therapy for CML. In order to be successful, um, multiple studies have shown that it's it's our job as a healthcare team patient, doctor, nurse, uh, family. To make sure that the treatment is being well, to- it's well tolerated. It's it's um, it's it's available, um, and that can that's a challenge over many years, and especially in, in a challenging healthcare environment. Um, side effects are being managed, and that people understand the importance, and 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 that that's the key to success. St- studies have shown that missing just a few doses a month can actually start to deteriorate the likelihood of achieving remission or holding a remission. Um, and again, it's the job of everyone to make sure that the treatment's going well, side effects are managed, and that there isn't any break in treatment. There can be breaks deliberate that need to be taken for side effects, for blood count changes, for a number of different reasons, but not not, not, not just um, for the sake of, of a break. And that's definitely um, a, a deleterious to the patient's outcome. There's a healthcare team that needs to help with this adherence uh, question, and it, and clearly the pharmacist plays a big role. Uh, I'm lucky in my setting. I have I have oncology pharmacists that talk to my patients with me to, uh, for example, look at drug drug interactions. Here's an example. A common medication used for heartburn or indigestion called a proton pump inhibitor can make a big difference in how much of a certain CML medication like disantinib or spricel is absorbed. It can actually reduce the efficacy of the drug significantly if it's taken. That's a common pairing. A lot of people take medicines for for heartburn and reflux. So those are the kind of things that can be picked up. The pharmacist, the healthcare team needs to look at drug-drug interactions, safety, side effects, and all work together. Um, We should all be available for questions. I personally rely on my nursing colleagues um, to help with communication, delivering results, understanding results, um, finding out what side effects and what barriers people have to this marathon of, of taking CML therapy over many years of time. Um, and, um, my, and of course, I'm, myself, I'm part of the team, but the pharmacist, and I enlist um, family, loved ones, and, and other clinical and non-clinical members of my team to um, keep the lines of communication open. Because, um, again, the success rate can be so high, but it's dependent on good communication and good teamwork. Lastly, and in the last m- moment, I'll say that um, as CML researchers, we're keenly interested in, because of the chronicity of treatment and the great outcomes we can have, the quality of life really matters. Our our treatment studies, our, uh, even our approaches to this option of treatment-free remission, as we call it, we look um, carefully at quality of life and need to um, emphasize that um, intolerance to treatment is not a tr- trivial issue. It can be significant um, and lead to uh, decline in the exposure. The patients get to medication, decline in, in response, even loss of response, so we've got to avoid that. Um, sometimes people have a mixture of their medicine's not working exactly right for them, and they may have some intolerance, so it can be complicated. Um, we have to be um, open-minded to the potential for dose adjustments, sometimes up, more often sometimes down in order to still preserve response, um, but mitigate side effects. And that also shouldn't be taken lightly. Doses can't be adjusted without full discussion and full disclosure. Um, but the quality of life, um, because of the chronicity of treatment, and needing to take this for, on average, you know, several years, three, four, five years minimum. Um, but, but, again, the prize is great, and that success can be um, uh, the, the answer in the, the overwhelming majority. And I would say uh, almost all patients, um, are able to achieve response to therapy uh, for the most part. Of course, there are some patients who don't achieve the deeper remissions. or some patients who loo- can lose response, but they can often be switched, um, salvaged, and take advantage of newer therapies, which I'm going to um, um, uh, leave to my partner, Dr. Shah, to probably describe in a bit more. Um, so let me stop there and uh, turn things over to the rest of the group.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was really um, outstanding and really also set the stage for the program, but really covering a lot of areas that are so important for the people on this call today. So thank you so much. Um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Neil Shaw. Dr. Shah is the Edward S. Agino, Distinguished Professor in Hematology-Oncology, Director, UCSF Molecular Medicine Residency Program, Leader of Hematopoietic Malignancies Program, Helen Dillow Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of California, San Francisco. Um, and Dr. Shah is going to be addressing uh, managing post-treatment side effects, late effects, clinical trials, um, the importance of treatment summaries, benefits of communicating with your health team, and follow-up care with your oncologist and primary care doctor. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Shah.
2: Thanks Thanks so much, and thanks to all of you for uh, joining us today. Um, So following um, what Dr. Morrow covered, I wanted to touch on a few topics. Um, So the first thing I want to discuss is actually managing treatment side effects and potential late effects of these medications. I think it's important to realize that there is a huge body of collective experience with CML um, from around the world, with literally thousands of patients who've largely participated, many of whom have participated in in clinical trials. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that CML is a relatively uncommon disease. There are about 6,000 new cases in the U.S. every year. Um, And with that in mind, any individual practitioner who's not more focused on the disease, Uh, and this, you know, this holds true, I think, for uh, people um, in the community, community physicians who try to manage the full spectrum of hematologic and oncologic conditions, Uh, many of these physicians uh, may have relatively limited experience, um, particularly with newer uh, CML treatments. And so, as Dr. Morrow alluded to, I think um, there is benefit to uh, at least once, uh, uh, reaching out to a CML specialist um, to ensure that uh, people take advantage of some of the greater body of knowledge um, that uh, of some of the greater body of knowledge that has been that has been uh, accumulated uh, over the years. So, c- returning back to side effects, um, thankfully, for uh, these drugs, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, these five drugs, uh, most of the side effects are what we would consider mild or moderate. Um, but even mild or moderate side effects certainly can be problematic for people if they uh, are to be dealt with on a chronic basis, uh, month after month, year after year. And as Dr. Morrow mentioned, you know, I think psychologically most patients need to prepare themselves, that they will need to be on the, one of these medications for um, a long period of time, at least for several years, and in many cases, perhaps even even lifelong. Um, there are other medications that in many cases can help manage side effects, or more preferably with the availability of a number of uh, choices of TKIs. Now patients have many options, and in most instances, <clears throat> we are able to find a drug that uh, not only controls the disease, uh, but will maximize uh, someone's quality of life. Um, uh, and as Dr. Morrow mentioned, in some instances, um, you know, we've, we've learned through practice more than anything else that to, to some extent, um, these agents, the dose can be reduced uh, while maintaining uh, efficacy and, uh, and, and uh, giving patients a better quality of life. And as Dr. Morrow mentioned, this is Something that should uh, certainly be discussed uh, with uh, with a physician and should not be you know uh, uh, taken uh, lightly because uh, it is important to realize that uh, prior to the availability of these drugs, you know th- this disease was something that, um, if left untreated, would run a course over would run its course over about five to seven years on average, and as Dr. Morrow mentioned now, we expect the vast majority of people to live as long as they would if they had never been diagnosed with the disease. There are some potentially late uh, – there are some, some possible late side effects and also some potentially serious side effects. Um, certainly soon after the diagnosis, it's important to follow the blood counts carefully to ensure that these levels don't go too low and put people at risk for um, uh, complications of low blood counts. Uh, For most of the TKIs, it is important to ensure that the liver is not negatively impacted, uh, as can happen happen on rare occasions. Um, For one of the TKIs, for instance, nilotinib, um, it is important to have um, EKGs periodically because there have been some uh, reported uh, cases of abnormal uh, changes in the EKG, which could predispose people to potentially developing uh, a dangerous heart rhythm. Um, we have, for the most part, not seen a lot of late toxicity to date with these, but it is important to bear in mind that follow-up is relatively short and that the first TKI imatinib was approved in 2001, so we have less than 20 years of experience uh, with, with, with all of these agents. Um, but as I mentioned, we have learned about some late toxicities after drugs were approved, such as vascular events, um, w- which can occur, I'd say, probably with the, high, at the highest frequency with panatinib. Um, but also have been observed with nilotinib. Pulmonary arterial hypertension has been observed uh, as a late complication in patients with dasatinib. Um, So whenever a new symptom emerges, it's important to alert your doctor to see if it might be related to the drug. If there is concern that a symptom is related to CML treatment, I generally will suggest a two-week treatment break to see if the symptom improves. If not, then it is most likely due to something unrelated, whereas if the symptoms improve, then and then recur upon restarting treatment, then the symptom is most likely related to the drug. And a change in dose or in treatment altogether may be indicated. I want to next talk about clinical trials uh, and include some clinical trial updates. Now, first and foremost, I just want to stress the importance of uh, cancer clinical trials and clinical trials in CML. Um, we do have uh, every drug that has uh, been transformative and been approved for this disease Um, was only made possible, uh, its development was only made possible through the participation of BRAVE people in in, in clinical trials. Um, And um, we have um, longer, the longest uh, reported follow-up that we have on a large number of patients is with uh, imatinib at about 10 years or so of follow-up in newly diagnosed patients. There have been a couple of uh, large studies that have been published. Um, And uh, really in both of these studies, it's becoming clear that um, people are living very long with this uh, condition if the disease is uh, properly managed. Um, It is very uncommon that people will succumb to their disease uh, in this day and age. But again, that does not mean that we cannot, that we should not take the disease uh, seriously. It's become clear that achievement of a relatively uh, deep uh, initial response is predictive with the best uh, for the best outcomes, and this refers to either a complete cytogenetic response, which can be documented on a bone marrow se- assessment or on the blood, uh, an evaluation of the of the bcr transcript level down to 1% or, or less. There have been second and third generation kinase inhibitors all evaluated in clinical trials, um, and. I would say that given the outstanding outcomes today for patients with newly diagnosed chronic phase CML, it's probably, it's gotten hard to come up with compelling ideas for studies because we expect the vast majority of people are going to do well if they can take and tolerate one of these treatments relatively well. Now, we have also learned uh, about the ability to stop therapy in um, some patients. And so several trials have demonstrated that about of those patients who are able to achieve and maintain a very deep molecular response are able to stop treatment for at least several years. Um, It it remains to be seen whether this is going to be lifelong, but it's certainly very exciting so far that that many patients are able to, it appears, are able to stop treatment. Again, uh, this was something that was uh, initially uh, uh, made possible through clinical trial evaluation, but know, we we now feel that under select instances and and under proper supervision, um, it may be possible for people to do this without actually participating in a clinical trial. And if it's something that you want to hear more about, uh, again, I would strongly encourage you to ask to uh, be referred to a CML specialist to discuss the latest data with that. Um, There have been a number of trials, uh, too many for me to go in, but they've into, but they basically found that under proper um, supervision, uh, discontinuation uh, is safe, uh, provided that people do resume therapy if indicated. And as I mentioned, about fifty percent of people uh, will uh, ultimately have to resume therapy. But uh, but the good news is that fifty percent appear so far uh, to be able to stay off treatment. There was one intriguing study um, recently um, called the Destiny study um, in the United Kingdom. Which actually evaluate, is evaluating the feasibility of dose reduction prior to discontinuation, and they've published some recent results that are pretty interesting, which suggest that following uh, level uh, following the achievement of a of a of a of a transcript level of 0.1%, which is quite deep but not as deep as needed to discontinue treatment, um, that patients are able in the vast majority to reduce their dose of their kinase inhibitor. And, and in most cases, maintain that remission and, and have, a, have better, better tolerability as well. Um, so I strongly encourage people whenever possible to consider participating in clinical trials if, if, if those are, if compelling ones are available. Um, I, I should mention that most of what we've been discussing has been for the chronic phase, the early phase of CML. Um, the most advanced phase is what we call the blast crisis phase. And some people are diagnosed with the blast crisis uh, phase of disease. And even today, despite our drugs, some people's disease progresses towards the blast crisis. And we definitely need to uh, identify better uh, treatment options for this group of patients. Uh, and so, again, this would be a place where I think uh, participation in clinical trials uh, would be essential for us to achieve this. Um, I want to next talk about the importance of treatment summaries. Um, So while some patients uh, appear to be fortunate enough, as I mentioned, to stop treatment definitively and possibly put CML firmly in the rearview mirror, for most patients, CML is going to be something that they live with for the rest of their lives, as I alluded to. I have several patients that I'm following who were diagnosed in the 1990s, and it can be very useful, uh, certainly, when I'm first meeting a patient, if they've had their disease for a while, uh, if they have a very careful diary of the treatments that they've taken for the disease, the doses that they've taken, the side effects that they had on those drugs, and the results of tests that assess response uh, while on these medications. That can be extremely helpful towards helping me um, decide the next steps and it's also, I think, you know, empowering from the the point of view of patients. Um, in in terms of uh, communicating with your healthcare team, um, as alluded to by Dr. Morrow, there's no medication that will not work if it's not con- t- taken consistently. And you know, the blessing of these medications is that they can transform outcomes. But the potential curse is if you don't take uh, one of these medications then you know the, the there's no reason to expect you're going to do any better than somebody did before these medications were around and that's that's really dangerous and even in this day and age it is it's always tragic um in, in my experience that that we that we unfortunately do have some patients um who um for one reason or another Um, uh, do not take their medications and suffer complications as a result. Um, So I would say if you are experiencing difficulty for any reason taking your medication, it's extremely important to convey this information to your healthcare team. Potential reasons that patients sometimes cite for this can be just simply inaccessibility to the medication due to either insurance problems or sometimes administrative inefficiencies. It can be due to side effects. It can be due to um, financial concerns. And it can also be due to depression and a sense of hopelessness that people may have um, due to other factors in their life, or due to an accumulation of things. So I'd say communicating, you know, any issues you're having to your healthcare team—they're there to help you. That can be the first step to help address any of these issues that you're facing. Um, It is also, uh, of course, essential to notify your healthcare team. Um, uh, so that they can ensure you, or to, to be in contact with your healthcare team so they can ensure you that you're not experiencing any unusual toxicity from CML treatment. Uh, I would say if you're not satisfied with the responsiveness of your healthcare team, there are, again are a number of CML specialists throughout the country, and you may find it worthwhile uh, to visit one of these physicians at least once again to assure that you're uh, uh, obtaining the, the, the best uh, possible care. Um, and the last topic I want to cover briefly is uh, following up with your oncologist and your primary care doctor. Um, um, and so given that today most people with CML, as I alluded to, are expected to live as long as they would if they didn't have uh, CML, provided that they're taking their drug as, as directed and, um, and responding well, Um, um, It is extremely important to have the disease monitored periodically, as I mentioned, Um, and this includes um, a PCR test on the blood every three months following the initiation of treatment, and these tests can be some of the the best uh, and the first indicators of potentially resistant disease evolving that could be probably best treated if it's recognized early and put into remission uh, with, with an alternative therapy. It is also important to take general health maintenance seriously. Um, So in the past, as I mentioned, prior to these drugs, life expectancy with CML was far shorter than it is today. And so it made sense for for an oncologist in the old days to manage most of the primary care issues. But now CML patients, I think, really need a good primary care doctor as much as people who do not have CML. Um, And one thing that Dr. Morrow mentioned that I would again like to stress is that there are medications that can interfere with these treatments. So it's always wise to notify your oncologist prior to taking any new medication so that she or he can ensure that there are no potential concerning uh, interactions so that that summarizes what I wanted to um uh, discover and I'm going to turn it back over to Carol.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shaw. That was very comprehensive and really um really outstanding as well and I know the questions for you during the q and a, so I am going to invite everybody to um, prepare for questions and um while you're doing that, I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services. You can access those services and other services as well. Um, so cancer care is a national organization, and we provide uh, free um, psychosocial services, which means we offer practical and financial assistance to people. We offer counseling Both um, on the telephone and online, we have a a call, a hope line. Um, You can call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 and speak to one of our oncology social workers about any of your concerns about living with CML, about living with any cancer, Um, and just in terms of just your own coping um, or your concerns about how do I talk to my child or how do I talk to my employer Or just how do I deal with this myself? We also offer support groups. We offer them on the telephone and online. We have over 120 um, online support groups, and we have specific online groups for both people themselves being treated for CML as well as people who are caregivers. We have actually um, blood cancer support groups that um, many people find helpful to be talking to people, um, or, or if it's online, you're really uh, kind of um posting to each other on a password protected um, site, and those are all moderated by a trained oncology social worker and um so that and it's very attractive to people all over the country because it's not it's not occurring at a specific time it's actually um uh, so it, you can post any time of the day or night um and that's good for people internationally as well um, and um and we also of course offer these workshops we also do lots of them we also do programs. Um, lots of publications, materials, backsheets, and of course our website has lots of information. Now um, this is a, um, a, a, a blood cancer program, and so there are many blood cancer organizations as well that will. When we send you the evaluation, you're going to get a listing of all the resources out there because there are quite a few of those um, organizations that are terrifically helpful to all of you as well. So um, um, so we do want to have you have you take advantage of everything that all the organizations have to offer. Absolutely. Um, And with that being said, we now have time for questions. So um, I'm going to ask um, uh, uh, Glenda to uh, explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get your question, then I will, um, at the end of the call, explain to you how to get your questions answered. So, Glenda? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking "Ask a Question." And again, to ask a question, please press star then one. So um, there's a question here. Um, so there's one of our online questions. I'm just. Um, I'm going to give this particular question to Dr. Morar to start with. Um, so, um, what are the long-term side effects of CML treatment?
1: Good question. <clears throat> long-term side effects of treatment, um, fortunately, have been pretty minimal. I think most people worry about very, very significant, very uh, risky side effects. Um, other diseases, damage to the heart, kidneys, liver, things along those lines. We um, we have a a list of side effects which we are on the lookout for, which would be accelerated um um arterial occlusive events or cardiovascular disease um changes in um pulmonary cardiopulmonary physiology like pulmonary hypertension dr Shah al- um alluded to both of these um and they seem to be uh, the there's some seems to be some vascular uh risk associated with um more than just a few of the TKIs, although per- perhaps a is the one with the least or the, probably a neutral position, basutinib may be quite close. Um, the strongest would be nilotinib um, and penantinib. Um, and disantinib and has perhaps a particular uh, predilection for causing maybe issues with uh, changes in um, pulmonary blood pressure, although it's quite rare, honestly, um, or, or pleural effusions, pleural pericardial effusions. So, so these are potential risks. They don't tend to be chronic um, conditions. Probably the other thing to mention might be is there a, a change over many years of treatment, particularly in, as we uh, patients age in, in renal function as a result of t- or kidney function, as mat- measured by the blood tests we do called creatinine or creatinine clearance, um, after taking TKI, for example, over many years. Um, with regards to other risks, um, we mainly focus on side effects that are present during treatment. Um, you know, we've seen nice resolution of, of some of the um, side effects which are not dangerous but can be nuisance with trial switching from one t care to the next, switching from imantinib to nilonib or imantinib to disantinib. Um And um, the, so, so and, that's, you know, and we see the same thing perhaps in treatment-free remission when patients have um, their treatment uh, carefully uh, held and monitored. Um, there are some things that are just associated with treatment, um, often mild anemia, or mild reductions in some of the blood counts as a result of actually being good response and good remission. Um, but but I think on the whole, and we've had specific studies such as an, 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 a you know a long-term effect study that focused on amantineb, saying what's reportable? What are patients having um, having been on treatment with TKIs? And there aren't much in the way of uh, thank goodness lasting side effects. Some other small but important things to mention would be changes in pigment, hair, nails. We see some changes that are often reversible um, with with treatment. But um, on the whole, we've come up with a, a class of medications that uh, don't don't have a, a a lot of um, late side effects or, or chronic uh, changes that um, that don't reverse with stopping treatment, or, or that are high frequency. I'm um, not to, Do you
0: want to add to that? Because
1: I think that was I think that
2: was pretty complete. The only other thing I would add is that this isn't perhaps um, uh, this is perhaps all that directed at the question. But um, we, to I think to our surprise, have seen um, when people stop treatment that, um, you know, we, certainly one would expect if you stop the medication, you know, you're either going to feel the same if you weren't having side effects, or you're going to feel better if you were having side effects. But what has been a little bit surprising is that a proportion of people who stop medication um, can develop um, uh, a musculoskeletal pain syndrome that um, in most cases is mild or moderate and, and tends to go away, but not always. Um, and so this was a little bit of a surprise, um, but um, as I said, it's relatively uncommon, and for most patients they'd prefer even to deal with that than to have to continue to take a drug uh, on, an, on an indefinite basis. It appears like this that this could happen with any of these drugs upon stopping them uh, when people are in a in a deep remission Um but, um, but yeah, no, I, I don't um, – I, I, I mean, I think we have to keep an open mind that follow-up is still relatively short and that, you know, we may learn over time about things and there may be some things that are happening at a low frequency that just with collective experience in more years we'll begin to see. But right now I'd say we're all – really quite reassured with, uh, with, with, with what uh, with what's been observed in terms of in terms of the safety uh, of these medications. Um, having said that, as I tried to mention during, uh, during my, my little uh, presentation there, um, some people you know do notice some things that would be bothersome to any of us, you know, mild nausea every day is not all that uh, appealing to, to, to deal with. Some people, Many people, I think, actually report um, what they describe as mental, mental fogginess, and uh, they just don't feel as sharp uh, mentally as, as they were. And in some cases, that can respond well to dose reductions or maybe switching medications. But, um, so there are some things that, again, these are not, these are not things that we consider, um, you know, potentially life-threatening but, but are certainly um, certainly quite problematic for patients.
0: Oh, excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, now a question for Dr. Shah, uh, for one of our online participants. My husband is currently taking panatinib. What and when will the next drug be released? He experiences lots of bone pain and sweats.
2: Okay. So, yeah, panatinib is a very effective drug. Um, it You know, probably in terms of activity, has the most promise of all the uh, of all the five drugs approved, and the reason I say that is because um, it seems to be relatively invulnerable to the development of resistance conferring mutations, and so some people may lose response to a particular drug, and the most common cause. Is uh, is through uh, evolution of, um, of, a, of of a mutation in the target that prevents the drug from uh, effectively inhibiting it. And as I mentioned, panatinib is uh, really unique amongst these drugs in as much as um, it's it's got the, it's got it's the most foolproof not completely foolproof, but it's the most foolproof against this uh, as a mechanism of, of resistance. And so there was a lot of hope that this was going to be a, uh, a best-in-class agent, and uh, there has been one mutation that uh, has been problematic for the first four drugs approved um, that were mentioned, but was sensitive to panatinib. This is the what's known as the BCR-ABL T315I mutation. Um, and so I imagine if somebody is taking this medication, it's probably because they have that particular mutation. And at the moment, um, it is the only approved medication with substantial efficacy against that mutation. Um, as far as what's in the pipeline, I, I think probably the next thing to likely come down the pipeline is, is a new drug um, that was known as Able one or also known now as a Asiminib. Um, which is a, um, a new uh, drug. It, it hits the same target, but it, it hits it in a different way. It hits it in a different region. Um, and so it, it's hoped that this will retain clinical activity against um, that, uh, that particular mutation in people that harbor it. And so far, the clinical data is looking like it supports it from that trial. It's still relatively early, but um, I'm certainly hopeful that sometime within the coming year or two that drug will be approved because we do we would like to have, a, you know, a safer, long-term uh, outcome um, for people um, uh, for a safer treatment for people who uh, have that mutation. And um, um, there are also our studies of if I should say, which are um, actually looking at lower doses to see whether those retain the efficacy and minimize the side effect profile. And so um, there are trials ongoing at the moment to sort of define that in in better uh, detail. And so it may be possible that a lower dose gets you everything in terms of the activity of panatinib, but but possibly reduces the the concerning side effect uh, rates. But that, of course, remains to be seen. There are other... Um, other kinase inhibitors coming down the pipeline. So sometimes people have a problem where they have either resistance, a combination of resistance or intolerance to all the approved drugs. And certainly, you know, even though we have five drugs, and you think that should be enough for everybody, there, are, you know, it's certainly the case that there are some people in whom uncommon but there are people in whom we start running out of options. And so um I think there's always going to be uh I think new treatments are always going to be welcome uh, for this disease. Um even things that are just tweaks if you will on 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 the available
1: on the available drugs. Oh,
0: excellent, fantastic. And, and Dr. Uh, Mar, did you want to add anything
1: or oh I I just want to lend support for the notion that the um Able001 as a as a novel Able kinase inhibitor really does show promise. To encourage people to look for uh, clinical trials, um, one that um, should be available, um, if not now, very very soon, would be for people that have taken two medications and not had success. Um, they, w- they would either um, uh, get able one or bisudinib. It's a randomized trial. I think we'll need to get that trial's data in order to have um, approval. But that's um, a, br- a bigger trial that should be run in more locations in the uh, in the country and abroad. Um, and soon we'll have trials in earlier lines of treatment after maybe just someone's first treatment to think about um, able one and to, to add the notion that that's really the first medicine that can be taken with another TKI. Um, that's the potentially the design of it. Um, so we're, we're, we made an advance that we may have a, a, the ability to do a combination approach. So hope out there for those with maybe who are at the um, later t- uh, TKI choices and maybe not having um, excellent response. We're working hard on that and then um, also to encourage people who are on PNNIP to seek good counsel regarding cardiovascular risk assessment and cardiovascular health, perhaps through a cardio-oncologist, which I think Dr. Shaw might have already mentioned.
0: Excellent idea. Could you say a little more about cardio-oncologists? Because that really has come up in in a number of our calls, and so that might be helpful to say a little more about them.
1: Sure. Um, So within cardiovascular medicine, there's there's increasingly specialists who uh, focus on the care of patients with cancer, and their and cardiovascular issues they may have. I think it began with a lot of research in, into a large number of patients, women um, who were being treated for breast cancer and some of the medications and their side effects. But so it's simply a cardiologist who can um, is familiar with chemotherapy side effects, can manage someone, you know, before, during, and after, particularly when they might have um, long-term effects from having had chemotherapy. And in the case of CML, um, there are certain centers, and not everybody. Not every center has cardio-oncology, but many of the uh, major centers do, and the CML specialists are familiar with where to where to find these folks. And, uh, you know, with a the consultation, they can, with a CML patient, for example, who may be um, needing to commence treatment with Penandib, just do what um, should be done anyway, which is a very good risk assessment of someone's cardiovascular health. Address um, <clears throat> whether anything needs to be treated, um, hypertension, uh, problems with cholesterol or lipids, blood sugar, um, not necessarily treat themselves each one of these problems, but identify how to, How to maximally lower the risk of cardiovascular disease and then track that um, during cancer treatment, again, before, during, and after, um, as needed, to make sure that uh, we handle the drug side effects safely. Um, We can probably lower risk simply by paying attention to simple things. One example would be with Pananib. We just had a call from a patient, um, or a question from a patient on Pananib. Blood pressure monitoring is is quite important there because. Uh, elevation of blood pressure isn't terribly uncommon. It should be very treatable and manageable and can really lower risk and, and minimize complications.
0: Thank you. Excellent. And um, we have another question in front of our online participants. Um, for this one's for Dr. Morrow. Um, what is the shortest number of years on a TKI? TKI, do you allow a chance to go off treatment?
1: That's a very good question, and Dr. Shah may have some thoughts on this as well. I think we... Um, we have a good body, a large body of knowledge from our patients, whom had our first TKIs with a and from which we've we've tried to settle the question: when is the optimal time to think about, uh, or, or be be or when is it permissible to think about treatment uh, interruption? Based on data from a large trial in Europe, I think we settled on the notion that um, the key the key features that are that um, predict success for potentially not needing TKI therapy lifelong is the risk of the CML diagnosis, uh, the time someone spends in deep remission, and and, and probably by extension and a little bit secondarily, how long they've been treated overall. Although it's most important about how long they've been in a deep remission. I would say the data from our earlier patients tells us at least three years. To get to the level of deep remission that we're talking about in order to start counting three years, that generally takes a year and a half to two years. So we're generally talking about a five-year treatment, which sounds like quite a long time. Of course, the next generation TKIs, we have data from nilotinib and desantinib trials where those drugs have been proven to get people to remission higher fraction and also get them there faster. So, so, we get to that deep remission faster, and indeed, trials have actually allowed patients to stop as early as one year, and I think that's too, too short, um, but we may see similar success for people who get to deep remission faster and then maybe have a deep remission that's clearly documented, and again, this is done under careful observation in the hands of experts, after perhaps as little as two years of deep remission. So that would be a total of maybe three years. So if someone said, just give me some you know, hard, hard facts, what, you know, when's the earliest you would consider? I would probably not consider it in, in any patient at this point until they've had probably out, around three years or more treatment, and, and then you have to carefully comb through the data to make sure that that person's suitable. The typical patient may take a little bit longer, so, so that's why I referred to as running a marathon. It, it is a few years of treatment, and that, that's obviously a moving target. Um, more research is being done to figure out just how to fine-tune that question.
0: Thank you. And Dr. Shah, do you want to add
2: to this as well? Yeah, I I agree that that's a great question. It's a hard one to answer, but um, in most of the trials that have been done, um, patients were required to be on treatment for at least three years and in a deep molecular remission for at least one to two years of that time. And so when we... Wrote the National Comprehensive Cancer Network uh, CML guidelines recently. Uh, when we when we modified them recently to allow them to or to, to authorize, if you will, um, uh, discontinuation um, outside of the context of clinical trials, we um, we stipulated that patients should be on treatment for a minimum of three years. It's it's you know it is true that there are things that, that are more predictive. That uh, the longer time on treatment, in some analyses, seems to be predictive of a of a of a greater success rate upon treatment cessation. But there are there are there are exceptions to this. Um, you know, I have a patient who um, started um, a second generation TKI, and after three months, uh, had an undetectable BCRABLE level and maintained that, and she stopped treatment after a total of three years of therapy, and she's now been off treatment for three and a half years. And so um, for some people, it, I think it depends on, you know, it it, it, it certainly, I think that, that we don't know that the good news is that if people are unsuccessful um, the first time, this is another, I think, compelling clinical trial uh, design at the moment, um, is to take people who are unsuccessful the first time, and um, ask, you know, if they go back on drug and if they once again achieve and maintain a deep remission, which the vast majority of them will, um, after another couple of years of being in a deep remission, what's the success rate for a uh, second attempt at treatment discontinuation? And the early evidence suggests that it may be around 40% from one trial um but we definitely need, you know, more experience with that. So um the, the the short answer to the question is I I I would I mean I, I would suggest a minimum of three years on, on treatment.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Um and this is a question for Dr. Shaw. Um if I, I have CML and I'm having surgery for another condition next week, how will this affect my CML medication schedule? Should I should my oncologist speak with my surgeon directly? or can my can I or my wife be the go between?
2: yeah, so um this question comes up quite frequently um you know it there are some some there there is some evidence that some c m l medications, at least in the laboratory may based on laboratory tests may increase the likelihood of bleeding, and sometimes surgeons get understandably a little bit concerned about that. Um, if your disease is under reasonably good control, um, meaning that you have a bcr level of 1% or less, um, and I tell people, you know, if it, makes, if it makes the surgery team and the anesthesiologist more comfortable for you not to be on the medication, I have no problem with you stopping it for a week before your surgery and restarting it maybe a week after, you know, a two-week treatment break um a prescribed two week treatment break um you know around for 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 a reason such as uh this I, i'm i'm very comfortable with so um but at the same time you know i do tell people that you know i don't i don't for the most part think there's a compelling reason to stop treatment and so continuing the medication is similarly fine um the, the one caveat would be that uh, around the time of surgery, people are frequently, you know, put on other medications, and some of these medications can interact with uh, with the CML medications. And um, and so we just want to be a little bit careful and cognizant uh, of that and, and know what medications uh, people are likely to be exposed to, um, you know, perioperatively.
0: Thank you. Thanks. And, um, uh, Dr. Um, Mauro, do you want to add as well?
1: I, I agree. I think it's um very reasonable to um have a, a treatment break. I think we haven't um I don't know if we have complete clarity on what the effects um um of all the TKIs is on bleeding um risk around procedures, but I think um, some people have taken it as a general rule all the TKIs I I specifically would uh would hold to um and perhaps bananib prior to any kind of invasive procedure um for enough Days to have the medication out of the system. The same them has a short half life, so it can be as short as two or three days. But I, I, I back Dr. Shah's thought that it's very reasonable.
0: And just to, there was a there's kind of an um add on piece to this um should um, who should be the go-between. Should it be the patient and wife, or, the, or should the physicians really talk to each other? And I guess I'm going to extend that not just to surgery, but also a lot of people sometimes have comorbid health problems as well. So perhaps just um, some guidance around that for people as well. If you want to start with that, Dr. Morrow and then and Dr. Shah. So,
1: so, Carol, I think you're saying that um, coordination of, the health, of someone's health care um, across different specialists, that's very important. Um, Communication hopefully would be between the physicians, especially over a procedure or comorbid condition the management. Because to be honest, it's I wouldn't expect um, you know a, a, a cardiologist or a pulmonologist um, to know about TKIs or about CML. Um, I see unfortunately a little bit of um, more fear um, that you know someone has a cancer diagnosis, um, and but you know CML is a is a highly treatable and you know in many cases a can be a functionally cured disease with treatment, and CMO patients may have very little in the way of, of uh, anomalies. Uh, they may have, you know, they, I think generally consider their immune system to be quite functional. Their uh, their laboratory studies, uh, for most part, are generally normal. They often feel good on treatment, have a little in the way of side effects. So, so the the, the interplay between uh, other uh, healthcare needed, whether it's surgery or just routine care or managing complications. or the other end of the spectrum, when things aren't going so well. Definitely needs to be um, at multiple levels, but definitely between the physicians.
0: Excellent. And Dr. Shah, do you want to add to
1: that? Um, no, I thought that was a
0: good answer. Well, actually, I have to say I want to thank our speakers. Um, Dr. Warren. Dr. Shah, you've done outstanding. This has been an amazing program. Lots of good questions, too, and lots of really different questions than we've had in the past. So this is really um, Amazing, and um, I know there are many more questions in queue, so I'll address those in a minute. But I do want to thank our speakers. I also want to thank all of you who queued up um, online and asked questions. That's really terrific, and um, and so uh, thank you all. And um, I also want to um, give some guidance to people who still have questions, because that's really the next phase of this in terms of what do I do with the questions I still have. So so in terms of those of you who still have questions, of course your health care team um is your best of course is a wonderful resource because they know you best but i know many of you like to get information at other places as well so, um, because we partner partnered with many, many blood cancer organizations, all of them have wonderful resources for you when you get your evaluation at the end of today's program you're going to get a listing of all of those organizations and I think they would be a wonderful resource for all of you um, because they um, and you can choose the ones that you think would be helpful because they're all actually quite excellent in terms of offering information. Um, I think you can certainly take advantage of their their resources. I also often give out the National Cancer Institute as a resource as well they have a um, they have a, um, a telephone number, but they also have a website, www.cancer.gov, and it's a wonderful website because it has a live chat feature, so it's good for people in the U.S. and internationally, and you can post your question, and um, the information specialist will then address your question, and um, you know they'll, they'll check their whole database and get you information that you can then take back to your treating healthcare team. Um, in addition to that, um, if you'd like to access any services from Cancer Care, whether it be our practical and financial assistance or our uh, counseling services, our support groups, um, simply contact Cancer Care. um, And uh, our staff, our oncology social work staff, are delighted to be with Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, um, I wouldn't want any one of you to feel alone. You certainly have your health care team, and you have all of these resources really at your fingertips, really, um, either to call them or to to go to their websites and to, to post your questions with them so they can get back to you um, all of whom are there to help you. And There are many blood cancer organizations, so that means that this is, they are all uh, primed to take questions from you and to be of support and help to you. So in those moments when you're feeling particularly alone, or, and that happens to many people throughout the course of their being treated for CML or any type of cancer, um, please do take advantage of those services. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.